This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 159, Posture. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Take a stand for truth. Be a stand-up guy. Stand up and be counted. We instinctively connect good posture and good character. If you don't buy into that, if you prefer to be a slouch, it's probably going to affect your relationships, including your relationship with Jesus. This week we will discuss what our loins are and how we gird them up, what separates princes and paupers, Jordan Peterson's first rule for life, and what motivates me to play games, including awful games. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Gird up your loins. That is one of my favorite Bible expressions. It occurs numerous times in the Old Testament, sometimes in a literal sense, sometimes in a figurative sense. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 46, Elijah girds up his loins and outruns Ahab's chariots down the mountain to Jezreel. In a more figurative sense, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 17, God tells Jeremiah, now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all that I commanded you. Do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. Israelite men dressed in long flowing robes, typically. The robes were held together by a wide leather belt or girdle. When it was necessary for hard work to be done, the man would gather up the skirts of his robe and tuck them between his legs up through that leather belt and tie it all together. That would expose the feet and the legs and the knees, but everything important would still be covered. And more to the point of the context here, it would allow him to do more vigorous activity than would have been the case otherwise. The metaphorical application is pretty obvious. There are going to be things that God calls us to do that are not easy necessarily. And we don't make excuses in those moments. We don't beg off. We simply make preparations. We gird up our loins. We prepare ourselves for that extra effort that's going to be necessary under the circumstances. We find a similar expression in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You're not going to run a very good race with your clothes flopping around your ankles. By preparing yourself, by preparing yourself well, by taking advantage of the opportunities that are there, putting in the extra effort, we're able to run with endurance the race. We're able to do whatever God asks of us. Hindrances that will trip us up aren't necessarily bad things, but they can become bad things in a spiritual context. Much like the rich young ruler who was asked to give up all of his possessions and follow after Jesus. It's not that the possessions were bad, it was his connection to the possessions that was bad. His unwillingness to put them aside. If we can put ourselves in position to minimize our hindrances, get them out of the way, put them in their place, as it were, then Jesus will be able to do great things for us. Similarly, in Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 1, Then he said to me that as God said to Ezekiel the prophet, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. That's a more metaphorical reference to the physical posture that Ezekiel is supposed to take here. Clearly, God could have spoken to Ezekiel when Ezekiel was sitting or lying down or asleep as far as that goes. But he asks Ezekiel to stand up. And clearly in this context, it's talking about mental preparation, not physical preparation. Get ready, he's saying. Important things are going on. You're going to be called to be a prophet. Ezekiel should have realized by this point, I hope that he did, that God has some special things in mind. 
And now he's going to reveal those things in chapter two and three. Stand up, get ready. Big things are going on here, and you need to get mentally prepared for this. Probably the most famous example, certainly the one that I think of first, when I think of girding up your loins, is in the book of Job. In Job 38 and verse 3, and then again in Job 40 verse 7, God gives Job a bit of a talking to. Gird up your loins, and he adds an extra phrase there. Gird up your loins like a man, he says. And clearly this is more of a metaphorical application, a spiritual application, than a literal one. He's going to get a dressing down, if you'll pardon the expression, from his heavenly father, whom he's claimed to have served, from whom he has expected answers and better treatment, and to a certain degree even demanded it. And when God gives him these speeches about the natural world and about Job's minimal place in that world, his minimal understanding even of that world, the point is that Job is looking at things like a child. To put it in words of my friend Jared Bowman, he needs to man up. And man up is not the only expression that we use to demonstrate in physical terms the importance of being like a grown-up. And a lot of them, not to be just overly crude about it, have to do with anatomy. And I can't help thinking that is part of the imagery here. Job, act like a man. Get ready to answer these questions if you can. Our life as Christians is difficult. Taking a stand, manning up, being adults is not always easy, but it is necessary. And the good news is that God is going to help us with that. As he tells us through Paul's pen in Ephesians chapter 6, he has given us this armor of God that is going to equip us to stand in that evil day, in times of temptation, in times of trial. He will equip us to stand. So stand, he says. We don't have any excuses. We may have a lack of initiative. We may have a lack of motivation. But if we can find the courage, if we can find the gumption to stand up straight, face up to our responsibilities, and be grown-ups about this, God can do some great things with us. This is what I've been reading. I finished The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain last month in my ongoing effort in 2022 to reacquaint myself, or acquaint myself for the first time, as it were, with some of the classics, books that I had, quite frankly, avoided over the years. But I like Mark Twain, and The Prince and the Pauper reminded me somewhat of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which I read way back in the day. Twain is a satirist at his core. And he is always keen on poking fun at all things English and all things royal. The Prince and the Pauper is essentially a story designed to tell us about the importance or lack of importance of people who think highly of themselves. In the book, a young boy named Tom happens to be just a dead ringer for the future Edward VI, King of England, who is the Prince of Wales at the beginning of the book. And not really knowing the story very well, I wondered if maybe it was some kind of separated birth kind of thing. But no, that's not it. They just happen to be doppelgangers. They tell us that everyone has a twin out there somewhere, and apparently Edward VI had one, at least in the mind of Mark Twain. And of course, they cross paths and change clothing and get separated. All of a sudden, people start treating poor Tom as though he were the prince and treating the prince as though he were an absolute nobody. How could something like that be pulled off? 
Well, I think Twain does a very good job of explaining it. Because really, when it comes down to it, the differences between human beings, other than sheer physical appearance, are largely constructs. There are certain trappings of royalty. Tom had him, the prince didn't. There is the setting, where people expect the prince to be the prince. They saw Tom in the palace and assumed he was the prince. They saw the prince in the gutter and assumed he wasn't the prince. But really, as much as anything else, it's the way you carry yourself. And this is one of the first things that grabbed my attention about Tom in this book. He, being brought up in filth, being brought up in poverty in inner-city London, decided that he didn't like being a pauper. He didn't like being poor. And so he wasn't going to act poor. And he decided that he was going to model himself after royalty. He was going to model himself after dignitaries. He's going to stand up straight, hence the posture connection. He's going to talk with dignity. He's going to comport himself in a way that indicated he was a person of substance. And of course, his family thought that was pretty silly, thought it was ludicrous. But they decided to play along more or less because, you know, what harm could it do? And before too long, the way that he is carrying himself has started to have an actual impact on the way that people are receiving him. He developed mannerisms that indicated that he thought he was worthy of respect, and people started respecting him. It's the difference between commanding respect and demanding respect. And maybe you've heard this distinction made in times past. When you command respect, it's because of your character. It's because of who you are at your core. Demanding respect is a very different kind of thing. That is basically, in so many words, putting a gun to someone's head and saying, you will treat me with respect. Threatening them. We've all known of people who thought that they were worthy of some kind of deference and pitched a fit when they didn't get it. And we've all known of people who, by their character, by their comportment, by their behavior, their value system, their trustworthiness, you could look to them and know this is a person of value, a person of substance, and you give them the respect that they have earned. Tom teaches us that by carrying yourself as a grown-up, carrying yourself as a person of substance, a person who commands respect, you're going to get respect. And that's how a pauper can look like a prince. And this is a terribly relevant point, I think, in the modern day, because every generation, we talk about the millennials or Gen X or whatever generation may be on the rise at any given time, but it's young people in general and in every generation, my generation included. There's always this tendency to think that we're being underappreciated, that we deserve more than we're getting, that people are ignoring us. We want to demand respect. And what God tells us to do is to command respect instead. If you want to be treated as someone of substance, act like someone who is of substance. I love the way that Paul puts it when he counsels his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 and following. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now you notice one glaring absence in Paul's description of this behavior pattern. He does not say, you do this, and people will treat you like a grown-up. 
He says, do the best you can. Don't give them an excuse to think poorly of you. Pay close attention, he says to yourself, to your teaching. Persevere in these things. And I would put it to you that more often than not, you will get the response that you're hoping for. But even if you don't, even if it takes you 10 years, 20 years, 30 years to acquire the reputation that you think you deserve, God is paying attention. You will ensure salvation, he says. You're going to put yourself on God's map, on God's radar. And that's ultimately all that really matters. Act like a spiritual grown-up. Stand up straight. Look your opponent in the eye. Act like someone who respects himself. You do that, you're going to tend to see that respect coming back to you a lot quicker than if you just whine about it all the time. This is what I've been hearing. If you've heard much from Jordan Peterson, like everybody else seems to have in the last few years, you know that his first rule for life is stand up straight with your shoulders back. And with most of the other advice that Dr. Peterson offers, it seems on the surface, especially to someone who's not philosophically aligned with Mr. Peterson, to be pretty irrelevant. He has a similar obsession about making your bed. What difference could it possibly make whether I make my bed? There are children dying in China. There's poverty all over the world, etc. We take control over what we can take control over, and that begins with your posture. That begins with your vision of yourself and the vision of yourself that you want to communicate to other people. Peterson argues, and and I agree for whatever it's worth, that by standing up straight, by putting your shoulders back, you expose yourself to the world. You declare your competence. You're showing that you believe yourself capable of handling life's difficulties. And by starting with something small like that, something that is noticeable, even subconsciously noticeable, You start yourself on a cycle of competence where you get used to the idea of being able to deal with circumstances. You start expecting that you're going to be able to counter difficulties with courage and with fortitude and with a certain degree of ability. All the psychologists tell us that there's something real to this. The way that you stand communicates things about your character. Superman and Clark Kent are great examples of this. I can remember watching Superman 2 for the first time, and Christopher Reeve, a very large man, of course, playing the part of Superman and playing the part of Clark Kent. And Lois thinks she has figured out that Clark really is Superman. And she confronts Clark about it and gets in his face, and you must be, you must be Superman. And finally, Clark's tired of fighting it. And he takes a deep breath, and he takes his glasses off, and he straightens up. And all of a sudden, he gains like two or three inches of height just out of nowhere. And that may have been some kind of practical effect put on by the filmmaker, but I know from personal experience that there is a significant difference between me while I'm slouching and me when I'm standing up. Superman, of course, is doing this for a reason. He doesn't want to look competent as Clark Kent. He wants to look mealy-mouthed. He wants to look passive, harmless, as much as somebody six foot two or whatever can be. We're supposed to believe that he is projecting himself as he actually is when he takes on the persona of Superman. We look at him and we have confidence because he clearly has confidence in himself. Yes, it's partly about what he does, leaping tall buildings in a single bound and that kind of thing. But also it's about the look in his eye. When a person is confident in himself, 
that connotes confidence to other people as well. Helps people have assurance in them. And it's a far cry from egotism. Superman is not an egotist. Jordan Peterson is not an egotist. At least I don't think he is. Being self-assured is not the same thing as being overly proud. And as good as I may think of Superman and Clark Kent being an example of this, surely the greatest example of all is Jesus. You look at the Jesus of John chapter 18, the one who confronts his accusers after being betrayed by Judas. They're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. What are you waiting for? Let these other people go. I'm the one that you want. He goes without a fuss, like a sheep before its shearers is dumb, Isaiah had prophesied. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus. We see it again in Pilate's court. Pilate is astonished at this. He's never seen a prisoner like this who looks him in the eye and tells him exactly the truth, is not begging for his life, is not making excuses for himself. A person who is completely and totally comfortable in his setting, and his setting is horrible. Death is on the horizon. Don't you know that I have the power to free you, Pilate says. Jesus says, you don't have any power at all unless I gave it to you. But it's the same Jesus that we saw back in chapter 13 of John, the one who voluntarily stooped, who got down on his knees and washed the feet of his ungrateful disciples. That's what a great leader actually is, one who not only is able to look adversity in the eye, not only able to stand up against hardships and challenges and meet these things without flinching, without showing fear, but also one who would voluntarily stoop down, assume a position of service, not because he has to, not because he's compelled to, not because he's scared, not because he's a weakling, but because he's strong enough to know that he can take that position of service and still be who he is. It's not about the show. It's not about posturing. It's about character that shows in the posture but it shows in the posture of service just as much, if not more, than in the posture of strength. I wonder if it's an accident that when Peter and the rest of the apostles finally got the lesson, and they are prepared to carry out the work that Jesus has given to them. The text says specifically in Acts 2 and verse number 14 that Peter stood up with the eleven and began preaching Jesus. I'm sure he could have preached from a sitting position, but it specifically says he stood up. Peter had not been a stand-up kind of guy, but he stands up now, and the others stand up with him. As the hymn that we oftentimes sing says, stand up, stand up for Jesus. By demonstrating to the world our commitment, our confidence, our assurance, by taking a firm stand for Jesus, by looking problems in the eye and saying, this is who I am, this is what I'm all about, we can perhaps imitate a little bit of the character of Jesus in our own lives and accomplish God's purposes as he gives us opportunity and strength. This is what I've been playing. Well, if you happen to be a Jordan Peterson fan today, you're going to get a twofer. So congratulations on that. I was doing some research with regard to rule number one, standing up straight with your shoulders back. And wondering if there was some kind of game that I could focus on to bring up the idea of posture. Seems like an odd connection to make there. And all of a sudden, Dr. Peterson starts talking about playing games. I'd never heard him speak on games before. I got very interested. 
And his philosophy about game playing is very similar to mine. I was saying amen all the way down the line. Life is a game, he says. In fact, more specifically, life is a series of games, a series of connections, of competitions, of encounters between people and situations. And we reveal what kind of person we are based on how we engage in these situations. First of all, of course, you got to play to win, because what's the point in engaging if you're not going to play to win? You play within the rules, of course. You play politely and kindly. But if you're going to be in a game, you ought to play to win. But more than that, he says, you play to get better at the game. And I start getting warm and tingly all over because this is the gospel that I preach. Play to get better at the game. I can't tell you how many games that I have played over the years where I had every reason to expect I was going to lose, but I enjoyed the game and I knew I could do better. I'm always trying to improve. I will sacrifice two, three, four games in a row in pursuit of a new strategy, a new way to approach the game where maybe it'll work better. Quite likely it won't, but maybe it will. In a general sense even, and he makes this point too, it's not just that you're playing to get better at the game, you're playing to get better at all games. Game players oftentimes use the word mechanic as a term for a procedure or a tactic that's used in a game. Maybe it's set collecting. Maybe it's worker placement. Maybe it is action selection. By learning how to do this thing, this mechanic, in one particular game, especially an easier game, it puts you in position to use that skill in a different game. If you play Ticket to Ride and you learn about set collection, learn how to collect five green train pieces in a row so that you can connect from this place to that place, that same kind of skill will serve you well in some other game. It's not just that we are learning how to win. It's learning how to play, getting more proficient at, if you'll pardon the expression, the game of life. And through all of this, I'm taking notes and I am saying to myself, this is going to work really, really well. But there's one thing he hasn't said, and this will be my, my capper. This will be the thing that I tie this all off with. Because a big part of my game playing is playing to help other players play better. It's not selfish at all. It's not self-centered at all. It's an effort to build someone else up instead. And just as I was choosing the words to put all that together into a cohesive thought, Jordan Peterson says it too. Well, what do you know about that? If you are the star of your hockey team or soccer team or basketball team, you need to learn to take pride, to take satisfaction in setting other people up. It's not about scoring 100 points a game or 100 goals a game or anything like that. You may win. You may be great. You may get your name in the paper. But a true person of character in these positions is going to work to see that other people succeed, that other people grow. And I'm all about that. I love teaching games to people. I love dealing with newbies and encouraging them, teaching them how to play. We're not talking about deliberately throwing a game. We're not talking about trying to lose. But we are talking about helping other people succeed and taking joy in other people succeeding. I like losing a game to my daughters. I'm not as keen on Tracy beating me in a game, but that's another story. And that brings me to the game of aggravation, a game which I despise. A game which I would really rather never, ever play again the rest of my life. If you know the game of aggravation, you know what happens here. You have a certain set of marbles, and you're trying to get them all the way around the board into your home base. And it all depends on die rolls, and it's it's kind of ugly, and, and it's very, very chancy. And if I am 
sitting with a three-year-old and trying to keep him or her engaged. And I ask if they want to play a game. They say, I want to play aggravation. I'll probably offer another alternative or two. Maybe we could play this. Maybe we could play that. No, I want to play aggravation. Okay. Now we'll play the best game of aggravation I've ever played in my life. Because it's not just about being the tallest person in the room. It's about helping other people be tall as well. It's about helping other people stand up straight, helping other people excel in their walk with Christ or in their game playing, depending on the context. But of course, I'm going to emphasize the walk with Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 11 and following, we read, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not, again, commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you'll have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are sound-minded, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul's all about minimizing the importance of his own standing in the eyes of other people, not as standing before God, of course. He's willing to embarrass himself. He's willing to humiliate himself. He will stoop down to others' level. If by doing so, he can elevate them. He's the ultimate team player. Knowing the fear of the Lord, he says, we persuade men. We are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us, not just Paul, all of us. He says earlier in the same context. With that in mind, why wouldn't I exert myself to get the best out of other people and not the best out of myself alone? There's a certain satisfaction, obviously, in being the tallest person in the room. But that's a pretty silly thing to brag about, isn't it? We didn't have anything to do with that. God gave us that. Our parents gave us that. And it's not a whole lot more noble for us to brag about being the holiest person in the room. Because ultimately, anything of a spiritual nature, we were given by God. It's a far better use of our time and energy to lift other people up, to encourage them, to help them build their character. Yes, play to win. Yes, play with an objective in mind. Try to grow in your understanding and in your application. But don't do it so that you'll be better than other people. Do it so that you can be the best version of yourself. And then encourage other people to do exactly the same thing. Allow them to imitate you as you're imitating Christ. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.